0: You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This weekend made a year since families began calling 911 about the odor of fuel in their neighborhoods. We went back into our archives to listen to those calls of concern. No one knew that in the weeks to come, some 90,000 families living in housing served by the military's water system would be displaced because fuel had made its way into their tap water and was not safe to drink or use. Take a listen.
1: Fire
0: department address of emergency. Hi, um, I smell like fuel, like diesel fuel. I live on AMR and, um, i just, it's a very strong odor. You come outside and you can smell it.
2: Okay. Hold on. Let me get in touch with the uh, fed fire dispatcher.
1: No, I 911, what's the address man. of your emergency?
2: ARDC, this is fire. I got a call online uh, calling from AMR with a strong odor of diesel. Um, I did not dispatch yet. I wanted to bring you folks in and see if you still want, if you want us to come and stay it.
0: Yeah, we will take it.
2: Ma'am? There's
0: a fuel, like a jet oh, fuel storage well, uh, area by Red Hill Hill. area, but um, just it's a strong odor. Yeah. And then another woman from an adjacent neighborhood calls in the emergency.
2: This is the fire department, address of your emergency.
3: Well, I live in Foster Village and yeah. there's some
4: kind of smell.
3: I'm not oh. sure if you guys got a couple calls
5: from that. Mm,
4: what kind of smell is like, it? it
2: it's,
5: what kind of smell is it? Like gasoline. What is the other one?
2: Diesel. diesel. Oh, like diesel. Okay. Somebody that's in, you know where AMR is, the crater? Uh-huh. Um, they are reporting an odor of diesel also i mean they look like they're nearby but kind of far away so i'm not sure where this diesel is coming from we're calling the military to see if they know what's going on right now but if you want a truck to come to you if it's strong where you're living i mean where you are right now uh, we can start there and see if we can locate something
0: and 15-year foster village resident Eric Nunez tells us he too called 911. The odor of gas fumes was coming from the Diamond Head side of his home.
6: It was after about 10 p.m. We were getting ready for bed, and it was a strange smell. My daughter actually brought it to our attention because she, um, she sleeps on this side of the house. Um, and then I had thought it was the neighbors that were cooking or doing something, but we, we went outside. We checked around. It was all dark. Nobody was doing anything. So we just called it in to let them know that we had a strange smell. And it was fume-like. Um, it wasn't like someone was doing barbecue or cookout. Um, and that's what was strange about it. And that's why we called it in.
0: And over the weekend, a group called the O'ahu Water Protectors marked the anniversary of the fuel leak with three days of sign waving. On Sunday, they distributed water and um, uh, popsicles and ice cream to military families at the Naval Exchange. Mikey and Noy and about two dozen others with the Red Hill Coalition were on hand to engage military families.
7: You guys want a free ice cream? Yeah. Have you guys heard about what's going on with Red Hill? Yeah. yeah. We lived we through, that. through that. Oh, thing. where you guys? Where you guys live when it happened? Red, Red Hill AMR. AMR. Oh dang! So you guys got sick, huh? Yeah. How's the water now? <laughs>
8: um,
7: it's okay. It's Haven't been drinking it though. Oh, that's good. That's good. Hello. So what's the free coupon? Yeah, you want our free ice cream? Yeah. You know what's going on with Red Hill? Yeah, uh, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Water is so, bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the one-year anniversary of the leak, so that's that's kind of why we're oh, here, just letting yeah. people know that it's still going on. You want one of these? Sure. Kind of informational pamphlet? I'm also part of the Mutual Aid Collective, uh, and, and we distribute water at Capilina Beach Homes because the people still getting sick over there. So oh, We were just wow. there yesterday. Yeah, so it's yeah. still, like, really an ongoing thing, and a lot of people don't oh, yeah. know about it. Like, people are moving into these residences, and they're not getting told until the water tells them. Yeah, know, so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the free ice cream over there. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> And Easterlin and her husband live at Capolina Beach Homes in Ava uh, She said it's been a hassle dealing with the contamination issues, the most recent with a break in a water main that meant low water pressure and the need to boil water. They don't trust that the water is safe to drink and rely on bottled water as a precaution. What are your thoughts at this point? I just hope it won't happen again, because, you know, it just struggled having to boil water.
5: And, you know, you cannot wash your dishes with boiling hot water.
0: Folks drinking the water now?
5: No, we are just buying those water. We don't really
0: want to drink the water, you know. It's just us, but I don't know about the other people. You don't trust the water. Yeah. <laughs> hope it doesn't happen again. You know, especially like mixing it up with the fuel because my sister-in-law, she was the most impacted one. What happened to her? They said they can smell like gasoline through the water. And she was pregnant at that time, but I'm just glad they're okay. And Helani Sonoda-Pale with the O'ahu Water Protectors urged families to stay informed about the Red Hill water crisis and its effect on O'ahu residents.
3: There is no future without water, none. The fact that there's still 104 million gallons sitting above the only aquifer that Oahu has in 80-year-old tanks, God knows what condition they're in. The fact that they're still sitting there one year after 93,000 people were poisoned is unacceptable. The fact that the U.S. Navy is now telling us that we have to wait two years before they can defuel 104 million gallons of fuel? We cannot wait that long. We have one aquifer, one. Without clean drinking water, you will not be able to live here, nor will your children, nor will your grandchildren. We are one earthquake away from a disaster
0: of no return. Also on hand this weekend was the head of the Sierra Club, Wayne Tanaka.
6: We're still not seeing the Navy act or even admit that this is an emergency, that our very future is hanging in the balance. And so we're trying to communicate to Navy leadership that this is, it's just unacceptable to ask us to hold our lives on the line for another 20 months, that they need to treat this as an emergency and direct all available resources to ensure that this fuel is removed before something much more catastrophic happens.
0: Tanaka was critical of the Navy's first informational forum in which the Sierra Club of Hawaii, along with the media, was not invited to sit at the table.
6: You know, I think some folks are very disappointed that the Navy decided to set up a forum that really did not have representation from the many, many groups that have been actively working to address this crisis that we're in. And we have seen the Navy hold its own meetings with regulators, with, over the last eight years, through the Administrative Order and Consent and the Fuel Tank Advisory Committee, and that hasn't resulted in anything except getting our water poison. What needs to happen is for there to be actual civilian oversight, actual Transparent back and forth dialogue as we've been promised in the over the last several months rather than just an information sharing forum where people are only told what the Navy wants them to hear.
0: And you folks are serving an eviction notice to the Navy. What do you say to people about the tact that you're taking now? Because the tone seems to have changed
6: somewhat to be clear our events this weekend are really about connection about reminding people that we're all connected whether you're you know a military family or a a native hawaiian family you know like water connects all of us and our futures all depends on the integrity of our island's environment and our aquifer and so that's why we're out here the eviction notice is targeted at the Navy Command, the people that actually make the decisions whether or not to treat this as an emergency. And by being here, by building these connections, you know, we're hoping that we can send a stronger message that we all need them to do the right thing, to act appropriately, and to give us the transparency and accountability that you know, we shouldn't even have to ask for.
0: And this weekend, that group moved from the uh, NEX to Makalapa Gate, at joint base, Pearl Harbor-Hickam, with the intention of symbolically serving an eviction notice to the military. When they found the gate closed, they moved on to Halava Gate, where they left the notice at the sentry. And as we mentioned earlier, the Navy is making its top brass. A couple of rear admirals uh, and others available to talk to the media this afternoon about its progress to date. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
7: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Molokai, O Lana, O Mau, O Hawaii.
0: Today we look at the origins of KTA superstores. Only found on Hawaii Island, the supermarket chain had modest beginnings. Koichi and Tonio Taniguchi opened a 500-square-foot grocery and dry goods store in 1916 to provide friends and family with the supplies they needed. In the early days, Koichi took orders from Hilo families and delivered groceries to them. By 1940, they made enough money to open a second store in downtown Hilo. In 1959, they opened a location on the leeward side of the island in Kailua-Kona. They now have locations in Hilo, Keoho Waimea, and Waikaloa Village. In 2018, the company opened a KTA Express in Kealakekua, which has a smaller footprint than a superstore, but has many of the same departments and carries its Mountain Apple brand. While it's the largest grocery chain on the Big Island with seven stores, it's it no longer operates at it, its original location. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us where KTA's first store was located? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag.
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello,
7: I'm Peter Fikowski, author of Climate Restoration. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the future that will sustain the human race.
5: Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
2: Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the school for examining essential questions of sustainability, a public charter middle school celebrating 10 years of serving Honolulu families. Learn more at seeqs.org.
0: There is growing concern about the threat of feral cats to endangered species like Hawaiian monk seals. This past week, we learned that the death of two spinner dolphins was linked to the parasite toxoplasmosis. It's found in cat feces raising alarms about feral cat colonies found near our shoreline. A newly formed nonprofit aims to help in that regard. It hopes to establish a cat sanctuary modeled after one on lanai. Holly Holowack joined us in the studio last week to talk about her proposal.
1: I love monk seals. I love spinner dolphins. I love shorebirds. And I love cats. And a lot of cat people do. And we want to create a way of saving them all which sounds kind of airy-fairy, but there is a way to do it. Not all cats carry the toxoplasmosis gene, so not every single cat in the world is gonna sit there and make the problem. It is shed through their urine, their feces, I mean, not urine, their feces, and, um, and then if it just sits there and nobody takes care of it, then it can, through the rainwater, wash down in the ocean, and an animal can Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, but they can And then it becomes fatal, unfortunately. I've always been a cat lover, but I never really thought much about it until I started working for Weinberg Village, Wymanalo, and the first day I walked on the property, there were 50 cats just roaming all over, just cats everywhere. Nobody was really taking care of them. They weren't spayed neuter. neutered. They were just there. So, as part of my job, I started caring for them and I got them trapped and neutered with the help of cat friends and some other wonderful people. And I started feeding them and taking care of them and I got a lot of them adopted. I got a lot of them gone to the vet whenever they needed vet care. And they became my colony. And then I found out that there are colonies all over the island and that people are caring for these colonies. and there are over 5,000 people on one one Facebook group alone, and those people go out every single night, and they care for their animals, they feed them, they trap, neuter, and, and manage them. It's called TNR, trap, neuter, release, back into the colony so they can manage them. And a lot of people say, well, why should you just, just don't feed them? Well, if we don't feed them, what will happen? They'll eat them
0: they'll go after the birds more
1: birds yeah they'll go after the birds they'll go to where they can find food that's not going to kill them they're going to be resourceful so if we if we continue to feed them we know where they are and when we see new ones we can trap and fix that new one and why is fixing important some people don't understand tnr 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 that's all i ever hear what does that mean well when we fix one spay or neuter it stops the reproductive cycle for those cats which means more cats will not happen. So the explosion can be reduced. So gradually, naturally the colony will die off. Right,
0: you're you're managing it is what you're, you're doing.
1: managing it, exactly. Yeah. And people spend thousands of dollars. So when I when I wanted to retire from the sanctuary, I mean from the village, I wanted some place to take my cats. They're not really my cats. I can't bring them all home. What am I gonna do with mm-hmm. the cats that are left? Which was about 40 or 50, and I said, okay, what am I gonna do? So I started reaching out to the community. Can anybody help me? And I found lots of wonderful people that have sanctuaries on a small scale in their backyard or their house they own. And then, they're full though. Everybody's full. And nobody knew what to do with them. And then I found the Lanai Cat Sanctuary. And I love the Lanai Cat Sanctuary. It's an open, uh, it's four acres with open fenced yard, like a giant um, lion enclosure and they've got 700 cats in there, and the cats are well fed, they get all their medical treatment, and they're contained within this area. And um, the Lanai Cat Sanctuary has been working with the DLNR to, to bring the cats from the shoreline and the harbors, which is my goal. We want to care for the unadoptables and bring them away from where they can cause the most harm and try to give them a good life where they can become um, an educational area where people can come visit, bring their children. Obviously some will become lovable and adoptable and we'll adopt out as many as we can. But our goal is to take the ones that, if they went to the Humane Society, they would just be killed because they're not adoptable.
0: You have just been able to form this a nonprofit organization. Right. And you're looking for property?
1: Yes, we are still, that's the number one thing we need now. Uh, we're looking for land. I would like at least four acres. It can be more preferably flat with some utilities because we're going to need water and electricity. And if we have tourists or guests or residents come to visit, we'll need bathrooms and whatnot. And so we're looking for a nice piece of property anywhere. There must be somebody with land <laughs> in the community that uh, cares for this and wants to be part of the solution. So Papokey Place is a wonderful board and we're working really hard to do what we need to do to be ready when we get the land. So right now, thank you very much for letting us come speak with you because I want to raise awareness that Popoke Place Wahoo Cat Sanctuary exists and it is going to happen, but I do need land.
0: And so you are reaching out to the different agencies, you know, to talk about, hey, this is you know our idea. We hope this can be a solution. Oh and, yeah, and try and get some buy-in from these agencies. Oh, I have
1: yes. Um, Humane Society Anna is their new director, and we love the direction that they're going in, and she's very supportive of us. We are uh, in the process of writing a MOA that that agrees that all of the cats we take will stop by there first, make sure they're trapped and neutered if they haven't been already, check them for any kind of disease or whatever, and then they'll come to us if they're unadoptable. So we've got a partnership there. We've got a partnership with Windward Community College Vet Tech Program. Their vet techs will come and they'll have hands-on experience with our animals while we're caring for them. Um, we are working with, of course, the Lanai Cat Sanctuary. Keon Yvonne has been wonderful helping me. We just went over there on an exploration trip and spent time with Keone and his um, general manager Joe and they spent all day telling us the ins and outs the nitty gritties that we needed to learn and be prepared for we're raising money now so that we have a pot of money when we're ready to when the land shows up which I know it will come I believe it will come we're ready to buy the fencing that we need to secure it and then the people will communicate the hopefully volunteers will come out and help us build it and then we can start taking cats.
0: So have you approached DLNR, Department of Land and Natural Resources? I
1: actually did. Um, I wanted to reach out to Suzanne Case while she was there because I knew she was supportive of uh, the Lanai Cat Sanctuary. So I asked Kioni if he could connect us, and she did by email, and she is very supportive of us taking the cats from the harbors and the beaches and the parks. So she she did say that she liked the idea of a pokey Place and we needed it on Oahu like other people are saying.
0: Obviously, there's zoning issues that you'll have to deal with. But what do you say to, let's say, critics who are fearful of a large sanctuary in the neighborhood?
1: Obviously, I'm hoping that it won't be in a neighborhood that will be troubled by traffic, because I don't think there'll be a lot of traffic, quite frankly. Even though I want to open it to tourism, I think we're going to only be open for a few hours during the day, like 10 to 3 or 11 to 2 or something. I mean, we'll start small. It's going to start small. Uh, it's gonna take a long time to get to the size of the Lanai Cat Sanctuary. But if I have the land in place and we're, we're established there, I can grow there, I can design and build what I have in my mind of the, the vision. And um, obviously I wanna reach out to the community and have the community buy in, that this is a good for the community and that we're, not, we're gonna be good neighbors and that it really is something that we all need. I mean, really, if you, everybody has an opinion about cats. They either love cats, and they want to help the cats, or they hate cats, and they want to get rid of the cats. So our thought is, if you love cats, help us. If you hate cats, help us help them, (laughs) because we will make it happen.
0: That was Holly Holowack, founder of Papoki Place O'ahu Cat Sanctuary, a new nonprofit that hopes to find a location for its proposed facility. It's in the very early stages of a long uphill process. Look for links to the group on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Lulu's Civil Beat has a story today about reef insurance. Uh, Hawaii joins Mexico in taking a bold step to protect our marine environment. Reporter Marcel Andre joins us today. Good morning, Marcel.
4: Morning, Catherine. Happy Monday.
0: Happy Monday. And we want a happy reef, right? So tell us about this
1: proposal.
4: That's right. So this is, uh, it's even more than a proposal. It is now officially in place. It is a pilot program for private insurance that is a a policy that is covering most of the reefs around uh most of the the main islands in in hawaii and this has been spearheaded by the nature conservancy it's the first of its kind in the united states and the policy specifically protects against wind generated damage from hurricanes and tropical storms that either buzz the islands or come very close. There's a, a whole chart of how that payout breakdown will work. And it covers reefs on Oahu, Maui, Molokai, Lanai, and uh, Kona side of the big island. It is for $2 million of damage, up to $2 million total uh, through, throughout the hurricane season of 2023. So it's it's... Two million, all in, uh, but up to one million dollars uh, per hurricane or tropical storm event, and this was privately funded. And uh, it was paid. It was uh, the Nature Conservancy paid about one hundred and ten thousand dollars, I'm told, for this this one policy through twenty twenty
0: three. So it's interesting. I mean, if it's a new thing, but there are uh, insurance companies that are um, willing to do this.
4: It is this new, novel approach. Uh, one of the uh, the pros, as advocates are are pushing, is that you know that it can work on the private side and the nonprofit side. They can work a lot faster than government. Although the state of Hawaii is doing feasibility studies, and they're very much interested in this as well. Uh, they're also working in tandem with the Nature Conservancy on uh, their their new model uh, to get all the permits and and to have everybody in the loop. But, yeah, for the insurance companies, it is actually in their best interest. It's not just kind of to, you know, be uh, out of the goodness of their hearts to protect coral reefs. Coral reefs are, are natural infrastructure and they're natural barriers against these kind of storms that are projected to hit the Hawaiian Islands more and more as climate change increases. And so it's actually in the insurance companies' best interest to try and, and better protect these these natural structures as best they can because that might help them avoid having to do additional payouts for the properties that they're insuring on the coast.
0: And so, how's it working in Mexico where they've started this?
4: It is uh, from the the reports I've seen. There have actually been a couple of payouts uh, for the the two different policies uh, that just preceded this one by, I want to say, a couple of years. There's there's one that covers area around Cancun and there's another one that covers uh, more of southern Mexico and Belize. And both of those areas have been hit by hurricanes. And in both situations, uh, both of those policies have had payouts. I think one was in the range of about $800,000 and another one more recently. I think just this uh, earlier this month even, um, in the, the Belize area, for about $100,000.
0: So we're insuring, like, the large coral heads in case they get, what, damaged or um, uh, knocked over?
4: Yeah, Right. This would provide for, like, immediate response, rapid response in the wake of a storm and get that money there quickly for these kind of restoration efforts to clear out debris very quickly in the wake of a storm. That could also mean that the coral heads themselves, as they're kind of bowling balls out there, uh, you know, that get dislodged, as well as maybe even gluing stuff and even uh, gluing coral back to the to the reef itself, as well as uh, efforts to regrow the, nurse, the, the coral over time in, in nurseries uh, away from the reef itself.
0: And just to be real clear, so this is basically storm damage. Um, I mean, it's not going to cover like uh, boats running aground on a reef or anything like that.
4: Exactly. This is wind generated. Advocates hope you might be able to expand what it covers if this is a success in, in going ahead.
0: Okay. Interesting. Well, we only have a couple more weeks of hurricane season, so hopefully we breeze through this one. But thanks so much, Marcel. Yeah.
4: Thanks, Catherine.
0: All right. We've been chatting with Marcel Henri with uh, today's reality check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Today
9: on The Daily, in a moment of political deja vu, a new special counsel has been appointed to investigate possible criminality by Donald Trump. We look at how this special counsel is different from the last one. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's Today on The Daily from The New York Times.
2: Beginning this afternoon at 1.30... Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the islands since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com.
0: pandemic reduced the number of families applying for co- college financial uh, aid in recent years, and the trend is slow to rebound. The window for FAFSA, which stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid, has just opened. Here to talk about it is HPR's Casey Harlow. Good morning.
10: Good morning, yes. Uh, so uh, last year, uh, the completion rate for the FAFSA was 53 uh, percent uh, for public school seniors. It was 56 percent. When compared to 2019, the state completion rate was 64% of people completing the free application for federal student aid. And you may be wondering, what is this? I mean, if you've gone to school in uh, recent decades and whatnot, you probably you know. are, you're probably probably <laughs> familiar with it. But uh, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive onto what uh, FAFSA actually is and how important. It actually is for uh, students Uh, we've uh, been seeing a lot of efforts uh, from the state uh, especially in the form of Hawaii P20 Uh, that is a partnership with uh, the executive office on early learning the State Department of Education and the University of Hawaii system and basically uh, it's a partnership to try to get uh, students um, to fulfill their college and career goals so they have a bunch of efforts to try to fulfill that And one of them is financial aid. So I spoke with Frank Green, who is a financial aid outreach counselor based at UH West Oahu, and he also works at uh, Hawaii P20. And this is basically the importance of FAFSA. And he does it uh, pretty well in about a minute soundbite.
9: What the FAFSA does, this is the primary document that's going to be used to determine a student's eligibility for federal financial aid. So for federal aid, it's the only document that's required, but it is also used by, and here's where the list goes on, state organizations will use the results of the FAFSA to determine eligibility for state programs. Institutions use it to determine how to disperse our funds and trying to make sure that we're getting money into the hands of the people who need it the most. It will also be used by private scholarship organizations. It won't be the sole document they use. They will request all kinds of documents to be included. But generally, a copy of the FAFSA is also required. So again, it starts the financial aid process.
10: So basically, right, this one document uh, sets the precedent for any type of financial aid that you're going to possibly uh, apply for or get.
5: Right, so
0: it's really important. And, yeah. and you know, uh, I, I know that, uh, uh, you know, some folks are wondering well, gosh, if, if, you know, people aren't filling this form out, are there fewer people going to college? Uh,
10: well, that remains to be seen. Uh, some people, um, and this kind of gets into the misconceptions of, a little bit about, about FAFSA. So some people don't fill out the FAFSA because they say, you know, their um, income is too high, they're not going to get any kind of financial aid. That's simply not true, and, you know, Frank, uh, Mr. Green, actually addresses some of these concerns and misconceptions that people have, and, um, you know, this dip uh, is a little bit of a concern, because what it means, ultimately, is that millions of dollars is going unused for Hawaii students and Hawaii families. Um, You know, billions of dollars is up for grabs every year for uh, student aid, and yet, if there's not that many people getting, if they are going to college, you know, that's money left on the table. And so uh, Mr. Green also uh, uh, kind of addresses some of these uh, misconceptions that a lot of people have about FAFSA.
9: Typical misconceptions that we hear, it's too difficult to complete. And I, I have to tell you that it's not, this is not a tax form, it's much easier. I've heard people say that it takes too long, you know, we don't have the time to get this. Hey, this is is a 45 minute to an hour process. We also hear from parents and students that we make too much money. We're not going to get anything from financial aid. Keep in mind that the FAFSA is the beginning of the financial aid process. And while your income levels may make it so that you're not going to receive any of the federal grants, FAFSA is still going to be used by most scholarship organizations.
10: And another misconception, uh, I spoke with Angela Jackson. She's the uh, associate director of uh, Hawaii P20 and also the uh, director of its Gear Up Hawaii program. And she says a lot of people kind of misjudge the affordability of college as well.
0: We have done surveys with our students and families, and we see that our students and family tend to overestimate the tuition for a University of Hawaii campus. And that misconception, Conception about the tuition could lead them to decide, oh, maybe college is not an affordable option for them.
10: And uh, another thing about the University of Hawaii tuition, uh, there is going to be a press conference at noon uh, Mm. regarding the tuition increase. So I will be sitting in on that as well. But uh, to get back to FAFSA, you know, not only does this help pay for college, uh, you know, they, Green and uh, Jackson admit that they're you're not. it's almost impossible to get 100% of people to complete the FAFSA. But what they do want to do is raise awareness for people because this not only pays for college, but if you are going into, say, a vocational training program, FAFSA could also help pay for that as well.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thanks. We have been talking with HPR reporter Casey Harlow about financial aid for college students. Uh, to read his stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is a conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Have you ever wished there was a map of our universe? Well, your wish has come true. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to talk about a new interactive map of the universe in your Monday Stargazer.
11: Stargazer Time, our weekly look at the massive universe surrounding us and but also things we can expect to find in our dark island skies. Who better to help us deliver that information than astronomer Christopher Phillips? And look at that. We've got him on the line. So grateful to have that, too. Chris, welcome
8: back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in our evening skies after sunset. The planets are spread out from east to the southwest. The moon this week is passing through its new moon phase, and so conditions will be perfect for
11: stargazing. And apparently Chris is... Toting along something downloadable and fun and interactive for you and yours, some sort of complete map of the universe that no doubt you're going to tell us much more about?
8: Yes, indeed. Ever wanted to explore the universe from your desktop? Well, a brand new interactive map of the universe has been launched by astronomers at the Johns Hopkins University. This map uses data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, or SDSS, as it's known in the astroworld. This map can be downloaded for free and it includes over 200,000 galaxies mapped by the multi-year survey.
11: Well, considering the technical savvy of the astroworld, as you call it, how come it's taken so long to get this map,
8: Chris? Well, it's taken years to gather this much complete data but also astronomers have been busy analyzing it and Mm. as you know that takes some time so science always takes priority over making pretty maps. And so where is the
11: telescope that this is based on located?
8: Well the survey operates from the 2.5 meter Sloan Foundation Telescope at Apache Point in New Mexico. Mm. The survey started way back in 2000 and is currently in its fifth phase right now.
11: And let's get back to that map now there are individual points that represent
8: entire galaxies is that the way it looks? That's correct. Each one containing hundreds of billions of stars and no doubt countless planets. This map allows us to look back 13.7 billion years into the past, an era not long after the Big Bang, the event that created our universe.
11: And can you click on those galaxies and pop them open to see some of the stuff inside like you're describing?
8: Unfortunately, you can't. Ah. It only represents the galaxy itself. (laughs) (laughs) Modeling the stars and the planets is way beyond our reach at the moment.
11: Well, there's something for a future stargazer. And as a fun I don't know, Chris, what do do you think Sloan has taught us about the universe?
8: Well, this survey has been instrumental in helping us understand things like the nature of dark matter, the evolution of galaxies and galaxy clusters, and it's also helped us explore quasars at the very
11: distant edge of the universe. Well, another exciting stargazer with lots of fun stuff for everyone to do. And where, Chris, can folks look for this? I understand they've come up with a really, really simple and catchy URL.
8: (laughs) It sure is. It's simply (laughs) mapoftheuniverse.net.
11: Good thinking from those folks, mapoftheuniverse.net, and uh, it's Christopher Phillips, another exciting and fun and uh, informative Stargazer, and an uh, interactive one, too. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll have all that for you at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for
2: Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Waimanalo Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design ferrarochoy.com.
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at a century-old family business on the island of Hawaii, known for its private label, Mountain Apple brand, and the living in Paradise Show, KTA Superstores is an iconic grocery store chain found only on the Big Island. Through the years, it's opened stores all over the island, including a KTA Express store in Kikua. The family business has spanned four generations of leadership. Koichi and Tonio Taniguchi started the business in 1916. Over the years, their son Tony and later nephew Barry took the reins. Barry Santobi is currently the president and COO. The chain now has three stores on the Kona side and four on the Hilo side, but it all started with a modest 500-square-foot grocery and dry goods store in Waiakea, which is the answer. To today's backyard quiz. Unfortunately, that store no longer stands today because it was destroyed in the 1946 tsunami. And our winner today, Hemang uh, Saraya from Maui. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org.
9: Where's the ring now? The ring is right here. Wow. Yeah. Hawaii Public Radio brings you the past into the present.
0: Oahu native Kevin Kuroda told us about his uncle Robert Kuroda. He was killed in action near Bruyere, France. Around the time of his death, Robert's class
9: ring was lost. In November of 2021, a Frenchman by the name of Sebastian had found his Farrington High School class ring. We weren't quite sure it was a true story. We found that it was true, and Sebastian had wanted to return the ring. He had done research to try to locate and return the ring to Robert's family. Mm -hmm. There's some lettering around the rim. Those are the words that say, enter to learn, go forth to serve, which was so appropriate for his journey.
3: Support news coverage at HPR. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: This week, Governor David Ige and First Lady Dawn Ige will sit down to their last Thanksgiving dinner in Washington Place. Earlier this year, Hawaii's first couple held a grand reopening of the second floor galleries to mark the 175th anniversary of Queen Liliuokalani's home and the former home of Hawaii's governors. Here's a little sound from that opening ceremony. First Lady Donny Gay presided over the festivities and welcomed guests for tours that finally resumed after the pandemic put everything on pause. The upstairs library at Washington Place is now open to the public for research on the Queen. We sat down with Don Ige in the room to reflect on the theme, Iola Ola Mau Ike Kumu, a strong foundation to grow and thrive. Mrs. Ige is a former teacher and school administrator, and so it was there in the classroom where she feels she left her mark as first lady
5: over the last eight years. Education became a priority in serving as first lady. So everything I did, I think, had an education twist or bent to it. One of my first initiatives was Choose Healthy Now with the Department of Health, where we promoted healthy eating. And we worked with the convenience stores such as 7-Eleven, Aloha Petroleum, to help put up displays to indicate which were it was red, yellow, and green. And green was a healthy item, yellow was in between, and red was uh, you should just caution yourself on it when eating, and that became popular among the convenience stores just to get the message out on healthy eating. And so from that, of course, in, as an educator, if kids are hungry, they won't be able to learn. So I began to focus on some food insecurity issues in working with the Department of Education. And one of the things that I learned was in Hawaii, our breakfast participation is one of the lowest in the country. So while we provide breakfast, and kids who have free and reduced lunch can can get breakfast pretty easily, kids weren't eating breakfast. Chances are, you know, you get up late, and we all get up late in the morning to rush to get breakfast. Is not always you tend to skip breakfast, and that's what we saw going on with the young children. They were either just quickly eating or not eating a full breakfast. So we wanted to be able to um, promote breakfast eating in the schools or look for alternative ways to serve breakfast, such as breakfast after the bell. After school starts, they would be able to grab and go a breakfast or have breakfast in the classroom and some of those models worked out very successfully in the schools that piloted those programs. Just like our family, it's, you know, we were, my kids were always running out, we were always rushing out, and I remember David would give them a peanut butter sandwich for breakfast. Most of the time they wouldn't eat it because we would find it at at the end of the week at the bottom of their backpack. (laughs) So that was quite disgusting after a while. So you learn that but at the same time, eating breakfast makes such a difference academically because they're, they're fueled for the day. They're ready to learn. So we really wanted to see this breakfast participation go up. And we were able to get some interesting helpers for, to help promote that. Marcus Mariota um, helped support the effort. He went out to Central Middle to promote breakfast, and he his foundation contributed uh, funds to help build a courtyard area so kids could go out and have breakfast there and enjoy the morning meal.
0: Well, that's really neat that you were able to bring in some of our role models for the children to, to connect with them.
5: Right, you know, for me, I know if I talk too much about breakfast, it's like their mom scolding them about breakfast so of course marcus is very he's very uh, notable and very well liked in the community so that got the attention of some of the kids i think
0: well you know when i talked to the governor and he did you know mention that uh, we did have some tough times with the pandemic mm-hmm. and he made had to make some tough decisions but you helped play a part in Kind of boosting the programs that were available
5: so one of the things that we helped to boost was at that time all the schools were providing free meals to kids even if they weren't coming to school because we had that shut down the meals were free but it was a grab and go meal Now, part of that is you can offer these things, but if people don't know about it, they won't come and get the meals. So we worked with No Kid Hungry, a national organization, and a black letter advertising company to promote grab-and-go. So we did some social media campaigns, a print campaign to help inform the public that free meals are available at the schools, and we saw the numbers go up after we started this campaign because we wanted people to really take advantage and know that No, full healthy meals are available at the schools, and that would be for breakfast and lunch also during that time we had i had launched it just before the pandemic but continued during the pandemic was ohana readers ohana readers is a literacy program in partnership with the hawaii state library friends of the library and dolly parton imagination library so this is a program it's you know dolly parton has the structure for it where kids between the ages of zero to five receive a book in the mail at no cost Um, and it would be uh, age-appropriate book that kids could enjoy with their families, and that's to promote literature, the joy of reading, and just to help increase vocabulary and creativity at that very early age. So from birth all the way up to age five, they get a free book in the mail a month. We started this program on Molokai. I wanted to reach out to the neighbor islands, so we started all of Molokai. We had wonderful turnout, about 60 to 70 percent of the children in that age group participated in that. We had some extra funds, so we went to Lanai. And uh, during the pandemic, we went to Kauai, with uh, West Kauai and the northern part of Kauai with the help of the KIUC Foundation. And so we started the program there and then now we're just launching the Na'alehu Library Area and Pahala Library Area on the Big Island.
0: And you just recently came back from Okinawa because you started a program there with the libraries.
5: Yes. So one of the initiatives I started was a sister, I wanted to take our our stories and our um, the stories that we have here in the islands beyond our shores. So I created a sister library relationship, just like sister state relationships, sister school relationships. This is one more extension of that, where we set up an agreement between uh, the Hawaii State Library and the prefectural library in Hiroshima, and the prefectural library in Okinawa. And this allows them to, and it just enhances and supports their efforts to communicate, share ideas with each other, especially now since we have a real robust virtual programs at the libraries, uh, that's one of the ways they can share. One of the first steps though, we took was to exchange books. Uh, WITH EACH OTHER, SO THE TWO BOOKS THAT WE PRESENTED TO HIROSHIMA WAS uh, LEILANI, WHICH IS WRITTEN BY TWO IOLANI TEACHERS. AND THE SECOND BOOK WAS uh, SNOW ANGELS, SAND ANGELS BY LOIS ANN YAMANAKA. YES, I'M FAMILIAR WITH THAT BOOK BECAUSE oh. WE WERE ABLE TO INTERVIEW HER WHEN oh. THAT CAME OUT. AND THAT
0: WAS A REALLY, REALLY NEAT STORY THAT SHE WAS ABLE TO PUT DOWN ON PAPER you know, BASED ON HER EXPERIENCE. YES.
5: AND YOU KNOW, AS YOU KNOW, I'M GOING TO GO OFF ON A TANGENT A LITTLE BIT. I DID HER STORIES, as a, ONE OF HER STORIES AS A READ ALOUD DURING ONE OF MY VIRTUAL PROGRAMS. AND WE HAD A, a CONTEST ON WHAT IS YOUR FAVORITE PLACE TO PLACE IN THE island. And she, her pri- the prize that she presented was a diorama kit because the story is about children building a diorama. And that was another fun thing to, to be able to partner with her on. But that's why that story became so important for me personally because it talked about our environment, families, and it was just a, a great book to share. With Okinawa, we did the same thing, shared those two stories plus eight other books. They wanted ten books. And the criteria for the book exchanges, it had to be stories about, of course, Hawaii, our culture, our families, and written by a local author. So that is just part of the sharing of, of our cultures.
0: It must be really gratifying you know, to know that you, know, you brought your skills as an administrator to share the insight you mm-hmm. know with the governor when he was facing these challenges over the pandemic i mean mm-hmm. no one ever thought that our
5: mm-hmm.
0: learning you know would be just turned on its head but you know we did show that our learning loss was the least in the country right yes, i mean yes. it, I'm, I'm sure that must have just you, you oh, wanted to jump for joy right, you,
5: hear right. that? you know that that was it was so exciting to hear i remember keith hayashi had shared that with us and it was like Great news you know to be able to know that our teachers are so dedicated in just being so flexible and doing what they needed to do to close that academic gap that was so uh, you know so much in front of them on a daily basis they've had to I cannot imagine you know knowing as a teacher what it takes to build a curriculum I would spend my summers building the curriculum FOR THE FOLLOWING SCHOOL YEAR, AND I WOULD ADJUST WHAT I'VE ALREADY DONE AND GO THROUGH A WHOLE PROCESS. BUT FOR THE PANDEMIC, THEY DIDN'T HAVE A SUMMER. THEY DIDN'T EVEN HAVE A WHOLE MONTH. THEY HAD TO DO IT IMMEDIATELY. AND IT'S JUST INCREDIBLE HOW THEY ALL CAME TOGETHER TO BE ABLE TO FORGE A NEW PATH IN EDUCATION AND BE SUCCESSFUL IN THIS KIND OF VIRTUAL LEARNING. YOU KNOW, there's IT'S NOT A PERFECT SYSTEM, BUT IT'S SOMETHING THAT REALLY HELPED TO tie them over during such a difficult time.
0: And that was Dawn Ege reflecting on her time as Hawaii's First Lady. She's grateful that she could tap her time in the public schools as an educator to help children in the classroom during our health and economic crisis. She's made more than 200 school visits uh, and she can't say enough about what teachers are doing to help our students thrive. We're all out of time. Tomorrow, we plan to hear what the Navy has to say about the one-year anniversary of the Red Hill water contamination crisis. Do you have a Red Hill story to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Reminder, all of our shows are archived on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. And find the podcast version of The Conversation on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.